A few weeks ago when we got the news that um, it appeared Lori had bone cancer, um, obviously really set us back on our heels, and um, we were preparing for the worst. And so last week we went away and um, fully expected that the test results, the third test, would confirm because the first two confirmed that there was bone cancer, elevated protein levels. When we were gone and uh, Lori got the call, I was stunned. I was just shocked because what we were preparing for was um, how severe is it? It's not a matter of if, it was a matter of how advanced. When she said, they said, I don't have it. I couldn't, I couldn't grasp that in my mind. And it was to my own shame because people of God were praying and God evidenced himself and the third test trumped the first two tests and God decided to not let that be the case. So we rejoice today over the fact that God answered prayer and he continues to answer prayer. This prayer initiative that Gary spoke of a couple weeks ago and that Lori addressed this morning is something not to be taken lightly, church. God is on the move. This church was founded on prayer. When this facility was first offered to us, 20 of us gathered together to spend three weeks in prayer. God, what are you up to? Are you in this? Do you want this to happen? And as he evidenced himself and made it obvious that that's what he wanted to do, we moved forward understanding through prayer. So what Lori didn't tell you is that back last summer when she decided to do this prayer study for the women of the church, she had no idea that Gary was thinking that God has laid on his heart this initiative of starting an intercessory prayer class. But God knew And he's brought the two together to link this so that our church is girded with prayer as we move forward because God's up to something amazing here. And we get to be part of it. And it is a privilege. So with that in mind, let's pray to the Father right now. Ask him that he would guide us as we move into the study of the book of Titus. Would you join me? Father, we yield completely to what you desire to do. And we know you're up to something beyond man's comprehension and understanding. And we take delight in the fact that we get to join you in this work, every single one of us. It doesn't matter, Father, when we proclaim this, whether we change light bulbs or shovel sidewalks or change diapers or teach in a class, it's all service to you and you receive glory from it but it means the case of the expansion of the church and the expansion of your kingdom and people who are coming into the kingdom as a result of it. Father, we ask as we take on this study that was words written on pieces of leather 2,000 years ago that had such a dramatic impact in Titus's life, we ask, God, that you would show us the application for our life through the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us application that we can carry through the week, things that will apply to our life that we might walk stronger and more boldly before you. And we ask that you give us this ability through the power of your Holy Spirit with eyes to see and ears to hear in ways that we have not before. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, I signed up for um, State Police Academy 
for a boot camp training program. It was a student trooper program, it was called, and it was kind of an experiential thing that high school students could attend to see whether or not they wanted to make a career in the state police. And so I was brought from my home on the, the west coast of Michigan, north of Muskegon, a little harbor town called Whitehall. I was brought over to Lansing to uh, the State Police Secondary Academy, uh, the, the training facility over on the west side by Grand Ledge, and spent a couple weeks there in this training program. I signed up for it because I knew in high school that I wanted to be a pilot, and I had heard that they had helicopters in the state police. So I thought, cool, I can carry a gun and fly a helicopter. So... I, I got to the state police training facility, and I was going through this uh, academy program my senior year in high school, and um, man, they worked our tails off. I, I played a lot of football, and I played a lot of high, uh, high school baseball and college baseball. I thought I knew what intense physical training was. I discovered a whole new meaning to it when I got to the state police headquarters. Um, they, they somehow based their program somehow mixed at that time on uh, what the Marines go through for basic boot camp. And so after we're a couple weeks into it, um, we're going through this training, and some of the uh, drill sergeants were really, really intense. I'd never encountered anything like that as a high school student. And uh, they gave us an assignment um, when we're doing this workout one day to do 100 push-ups, and anybody that couldn't do it would be humiliated before the rest of the class. And as I'm doing these push-ups, you know, and I'm trying to get closer to 100, I'm like at 80, and I'm about dying. My arms are totally rubber. Um, the drill sergeant comes around, and he puts his foot on my back, and he's pushing me down every time I try and come back up and calling me a wimp and all kinds of names in the book. And it was really humiliating. But as I'm, as I'm doing these push-ups, I said, God, I cannot do this. I don't have the physical strength in me to make it. And I'm going to be embarrassed in front of all my friends here at this academy. I didn't know these other guys were collapsing around me too. So I, all of a sudden, as I prayed that, I just felt this surge of power go through my body. And I just started like a machine. Finished the last 20 and I did it. And I was feeling really proud of myself. And as we stood up, the drill sergeant said to us, now that you've completed two weeks of basic training here at this academy, we want you to know that what you've just experienced is only 25% of what the real training is actually like. That was amazing to me. I had no idea. But I felt so exhausted at that point because I had been completely trying to do it on my own strength. Some of you here today are trying to do your daily tasks, trying to walk the load, to walk the walk on your own strength. And you are going to discover through this study of the book of Titus that it's a constant reminder for us that we're to surrender to God, to surrender our direction, to surrender our will, and allow him to flow through us, to help us carry the load. Your brothers and sisters together in Christ want to work and come alongside you. If you had seen what I saw at 7.30 this morning, you would have seen the, the fellowship hall downstairs filled with workers for the Christian ministry of the children's program here at New Hope. And Debbie had gone out of her way with her team to make a breakfast as a thank you for all those people. Everyone sitting down there were co-laborers together, working together arm in arm for the sake of advancing the kingdom. That's what we're called to do as a church body, to labor together, to help carry each other's load, to carry the burden together. This study we're starting this morning is a seven-week study, and it's going to take us to the point where we're stepping back to A.D. 66, 
we're looking at this letter that's written to a young man by the name of Titus. Not to be confused with Titus, the emperor of Rome, but Titus, a Gentile, a Greek man who was led to Christ by Paul. And he's an understudy of Paul. Paul, at this point in time, when this letter has been written, has just served time in a Roman prison. Actually, he was under house arrest. And he was released, and as he left Rome and sailed through the Mediterranean, he stopped in Macedonia. And in Macedonia, he sat down and began writing a letter to a young man by the name of Timothy. Today, we call that book First Timothy. That's the letter he wrote from Macedonia to Timothy to encourage him. After he left Macedonia, his ship sailed to an island by the name of Crete, C-R-E-T-E. If you have Bible in the back of, or a map in the back of your Bible, in the very back you'll find Paul's missionary journeys, and you'll see that there's an island right off the coast of Italy, right at the bottom of the boot. It's still today called Crete, and that's the island that Paul left Titus on. Paul sailed from Titus, from, from Crete, up to an area today we call Greece, at that time called Nicopolis. I don't know, if Blair, if you have that photo. Can you put that image up there for me? Looks pretty luxurious today. That's what it would look like to us. It was a beach setting where Paul was at when he sat down to write this letter from this region today we call Greece. That time they called Nicopolis, and he was sitting down to encourage this young man on this island of Crete by the name of Titus. Now, at this period of time, Paul is 66-some years of age, maybe 65 years of age. He's within a year of being executed for the sake of the gospel. Up till this point, he's experienced beatings. As an elderly man, he was stoned, left for dead laying outside the city. Yet he continued to preach the gospel. He knew what it was to suffer harm for the sake of the kingdom. And as he traveled to Macedonia and encouraged Timothy and then traveled to Nicopolis and encouraged Titus, you're going to see in this writing this morning the encouragement that comes to us as the church today as we continue to serve our God. So you're going to see Titus receiving a passing of the baton from Paul to Titus, to this younger man. You might ask yourself when you look at an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, way off the coast of Italy, how in the world did Christians end up on this island called Crete, way out in the middle of the ocean in the first century, not that many years after Jesus left the planet? How in the world did a church get started there, and apparently multiple churches? Well, if you step back with me to the beginning of the church, the first century church, and you remember Peter standing in Jerusalem, and as he's in Jerusalem, he addresses the people of Jerusalem, what we call today Pentecost, Peter begins to preach to the people of Jerusalem, to the city. And we understand today, as we look back at Acts chapter 2, that there were people from all over the known world gathered in Jerusalem to hear the gospel message being taught. Look with me up on the screen, and you'll see an example of this from Acts chapter 2. It might surprise you to see who's actually there. Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. Visitors from both Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So we see all the way back in the very first setting in which the church launched, there's individuals from the island of Crete, known as Cretans. They're hearing the message taught that Peter was speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And apparently some of those individuals heard and accepted and believed and picked up their goods and went back to their home island, went back to Crete and established churches there. Apparently very fledgling churches, not well taught. And so Paul decided when he sailed there to leave Titus on this island. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the reputation of the people of this island in just a minute, but I want you to grasp why this letter was written first. If you have your study notes that came in your bulletin this morning, you'll find that I've identified in the very first question three specific points on each chapter of why this was written. Chapter number one, the very first thing that was written, and we're going to look at this thoroughly next week, is the qualifications of church leadership, specifically the theology, the personal character, and the conduct of those who were in leadership in the church. The second chapter we're going to look at is the character and the conduct of the church among ourselves, how we treat each other. And the third chapter is the character and conduct of the church before the world around us, before the unbelieving world, people who have not yet found faith in Christ. All three of these purposes, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, are essential to building a strong church and having a church that's very evangelistic. That was the purpose in which this note was written, Titus, this short letter. The ultimate purpose is for evangelism, to prepare the church to be an effective witness. So it starts with establishing church leaders and then speaks to church members and then talks about the witness of the church in the world. It's kind of like a compact guide to contagious Christianity, all set down in this little three chapters. So first of all, what do we know about Titus? Well, he was a Gentile. We understand that a non-Jew, a Greek young man, we understand that being from the area of Greece, Paul even identified him that way. Look with me on the screen at Galatians 2.3. This is Paul writing, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Titus, we find in Scripture to be the poster child for grace. Paul took him with him down to Jerusalem to convince the Jewish Christians that individuals who came to faith in Christ didn't need to live under the law anymore, that they were under grace. And so Titus became the poster child. Paul took him with many to, to many places to prove to the Jews, this is what it looks like when God works through a Gentile, a non-Jew. And so he used him constantly in that way. And Uh, Titus got a lot of exposure to how Paul preached and how Paul taught and what it was like to do ministry. Let me tell you a little bit about the background of the people who lived on the island of Crete. First of all, you need to know that this was a Roman training garrison center. So when individuals were recruited into the military in Rome, they were sent down to the island of Crete for training. So think like Miramar or Camp Pendleton, like a Marine Corps training base, and in a place where we would send individuals to get trained. That's what Crete was like. So you've got all these military individuals on this island. And then know this, it was a shipping port, a place where large vessels on the Mediterranean Ocean in between the Adriatic and the Aegean Seas would pull in and go to dock. And so you had all the sailors coming in on the weekends looking for some time of refreshment on shore. So you got guys looking for shore leave. So you add that to the military guys that are there. And then you have all the island dwellers, the people who were born there, naturalized citizens, and then add to it people who are looking to run away, people who run to islands to escape and leave their past behind them. 
So Titus has got these four groups of people constantly before him, and that's why he needed to receive this letter you're about to read from Paul instructing him how to conduct a church in this area that was really hostile. You got all the party guys, you got all the military guys, you got the island dwellers, and they're an independent group. So I imagine this. I imagine Paul sailing to Macedonia, writing the letter to Timothy, and then sailing to Greece, but stopping at Crete and surveying the landscape, seeing what things were like there in those new churches, and saying to Titus, you know, I think you need to be here. You need to establish these churches. Can you imagine Titus as a 30-something-year-old guy standing on the docks as he watches Paul's boat sail away? Can you imagine seeing your best friend in the world, the one who is your encourager, your great mentor, leaving your presence, and you're left with this group of people? I am so grateful that these letters were handwritten by Paul to Titus before the day in the age of computers because you know they represent in each stroke of the pen the reality of what life was like for him so he could encourage him in the walk that he was going before. So if you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Titus, chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, you're going to find the verses on the screen as well. But just know this, Titus is a really short little book towards the end of the New Testament, almost all the way to the Revelation, to the end of the book. You can follow along in your Bible or from the pew rack Bibles that are there with you and also up on the screen. This is how it starts. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Right away, Paul calls himself a bond slave, and he doesn't mention any of his credentials. Why in the world doesn't he do that? Well, we're going to address that next week. But here he identifies himself simply as a bond slave. Now remember, this is next to the last letter that Paul wrote before he died. About a year from this point, he's executed for the faith. So he's really revered among the church. People listen to what Paul has to say. Yet he doesn't identify himself as Paul, the great philosopher, Paul, the very intelligent, well-studied individual. As a matter of fact, this is the way Warren Wearsby summed it up. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see this quote. Paul could have identified himself as a brilliant scholar, a highly educated Jewish leader, learned in Greek literature and philosophy. He could have flaunted his inherited Roman citizenship, an extreme advantage in that day. He could have boasted of being caught up to the third heaven, into paradise, of his gift of miracles. He chose, rather, to identify himself foremost as a bondservant of God. What is a bondservant? And it's important that you know this because you are bondservants as well. The word is doulos in the Greek. Look with me at the definition for it. Very simply, a bondservant, doulos, owned nothing, not even his clothing. He's required to carry others' burdens. Here's the remarkable thing about a bondservant. A bondservant was usually someone who was purchased into slavery, worked so long for their master that they earned their freedom, and by the time they earned their freedom, a bondservant willingly gave themselves back to their master and said, I will serve you the rest of my life. A bondservant owned no business, no jewels, 
no boat. He didn't have anything of his own. As a matter of fact, every thought, every breath, every effort, everything was under the mastery of his master. So when Paul says, I'm a doulos of God, he's given up everything. He's yielded himself completely to God's service. And I've got to tell you, church, when I read that, it really sets me back because it causes me to say, have I really done that? Can I honestly say I'm a doulos? Because I own a lot. And before you look too judgmentally at me, you own a lot too, okay? We're, we're, we're Americans. I mean, we like our possessions. And it's not just our materialistic possessions. It's our destiny too. We like being in control of our future. But Paul is saying, I'm a doulos. I've given it all up to God. And I believe he means it. So I have to ask myself, am I really there? Because to be a Christian is to be a bondservant of God. Scripture says we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6.20. We have been bought with a price. We're not our own. So he doesn't only identify himself as a doulos, as a slave of God. He also says something remarkable. He says, I'm an apostle, an apostle of Jesus. That's his official rank, his title, his position. This word is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Maybe you've never really identified the difference before between apostle and disciple. But I want you to see the definition for apostle. Look with me on the screen. Apostolos, a delegate, a delegate, especially an ambassador of the gospel, officially a commissioner of Christ, he that is sent. Now, here's what's remarkable about an apostle. An apostolos could only deliver the message that his master gave to him. We are all disciples. We can call ourselves disciples because we are followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot call ourselves apostles because an apostolos specifically received a commission, a direct order from his master to carry out an activity. So an apostolos, when he says, I'm not just an apostle, I'm an apostle of Jesus, Here's an example of it up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What's the difference? If you have your Bible with you, this is not going to be up on the screen. Turn to the book of Matthew. I'm going to show you an example of it in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus is talking directly to the disciples. I'm going to show you the transition between a disciple and an apostle. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 I'll read this to you. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. If you have it in your Bible, you might want to underline that part. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now watch the transition in verse 2. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. There's a switch. They're called disciples in one verse, apostles in the next. Why? Because Jesus gave them authority, and he sent them out, and they became apostolos. All of a sudden, the 12 disciples are now the 12 apostles. And so Paul's identifying himself with this group because his authority didn't come from himself. His authority was derived from the one who sent him. So he says, I'm an apostle, an apostolos of Jesus Christ. 
Why? What's the motivation? Well, he tells us, for the faith of those chosen of God. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus, for the faith of those chosen of God. For, the word kata, means literally the purpose of. What's the purpose of it? To further one objective to him given by Jesus. Jesus gave him an objective, and here it is, to advance faith and knowledge. So in your Bible, you might want to circle the words faith and knowledge because our faith, what we hold in our heart, we believe to be dear, is linked with the knowledge in our head, the truth of the word. So Paul says, for the purpose, for those chosen of God, for faith and the knowledge of the truth. It's the inner realization of what we understand mentally with our head to be true, linking the two together. This, this knowledge of the truth. Faith is a heart response to the truth of the gospel, but it must also possess your mind. God never intended his people to be intellectually ignorant of the truth of the gospel. He wants us to understand his word. So Paul, this very learned man, says, my objective is to advance faith and knowledge, linking the two together, and knowledge of the truth. And this word knowledge is a very important word to you. Look with me on the screen at the definition. Knowledge is the word epignosis, a clear perception of a truth, recognition, full discernment, meaning a complete understanding of what God declared to be truth in his word. We take it cognitively. We grasp it and understand it and link it together with our faith. And then he goes one further. He says, embodied with this truth, with this knowledge and this faith is an attitude that leads to godly behavior. That's why it plays out that way. And the knowledge of the truth according to godliness, linking saving truth with faith, evidence itself in a godly behavior in your life. Knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. In other words, this, God's truth produces God's results in your life. You look like a God follower. You're going to see that in just a minute in the way that Paul addresses Titus, in the way that he speaks specifically to him. He looks like he has God behavior in his life. Here's a great fault in the church today. Many who name the name of Christ who live in sinful lifestyle, in sinful behavior, wonder why they have no impact in the world around them. Frankly, it's because of this. The world looks at people who live in sinful lifestyle and say, they're supposed to be representing people who have been saved from sin? And what's the big deal about Christianity? They live no differently than I live. If the world of church lives like the world of people who are unsaved and they look identical, what's the attraction point for people of the world? So if we declare that the gospel saves men from sin, but we live like sinners, we're going to have no impact on the world. So at salvation, a believer is given an appetite for truth. They want to consume it. I've met many individuals who come to faith in Christ here at this church in the last couple years who are absorbed with understanding the truth of this word. They want to know more. It possesses them. So here's how we sum this up. Those of God, those chosen of God that Paul came to speak to, he's saying you're chosen of God who have latched on to the truth and walk with God, produce godly lifestyle. They're gripped by God and they're in harmony with God's actions. There's an intimate connection here between the possession of truth, the knowledge of the word of God, 
and your lifestyle, genuine godliness. This point cannot be exaggerated. I cannot say enough about it. Look with me the way Paul stated it up on the screen. 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Do you think that was important to Paul? We can't underestimate how important it is for us to live like God's people. He's saying, you believe differently. You believe you can go hang out in the bars and look like people of the world and you have no impact in your life whatsoever and that God has made an imprint in your life and you look no different? You're conceited. You are puffed up. That's what he's calling us out in Scripture. You understand nothing about godliness. Leave it behind. Leave the ways of the world behind you. Move forward in godliness. Why am I yelling at you? I don't mean to do that. Sorry. (laughs) Verse 2. Sorry, I get heated up about these things because godliness is a manifestation of the Spirit at work in your life. You want to see the Spirit at work? You look at someone who's sold out to God. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. In the hope of eternal life. In the hope of is a construction term. This is really cool. It means what it's resting on, the girders. If I'm leaning on this podium, this podium is leaning on the floor, which is leaning on the beams underneath it, which is leaning on the foundation the superstructure of this building. So in the hope of, it's resting on our God. In the hope of eternal life, the superstructure of what we're hoping for, eternal life, it rests on the certain character of your God, whom he says cannot lie. So God, the superstructure our faith is resting on, promised us eternal life. And he cannot lie. Look at me at the definition on the screen for that phrase. Apsudes, meaning that which cannot lie. You're familiar with the word pseudo. We use it in the English language today. Pseudo meaning false or a lie. Apsudo, apsudes, means that cannot lie. God cannot lie. And so this assures us of the fulfillment of this promise. Made when? Paul said it. It was made long ages ago. Promised before the beginning of time. Literally, this is the way it's interpreted. Before times eternal. Meaning that this promise that we've been given of eternal life has been rooted in the eternal purposes of God way before Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God. It's rooted in eternity past. And your God set a destiny for us of eternal life with him. It's unalterably guaranteed by God's word and by his character and nature before man was ever created. God merely put the pieces in place after man fell. Verse 3, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. At the proper time, meaning he made it known when he wanted to. He revealed the word of God, the truth. This that's revealed here, this word is not logos, Jesus Christ. It's talking about the word salvation, the message of salvation, the gospel message. He says, I get to proclaim this. I was entrusted with it. But at the proper time manifested even his word, the truth of this gospel, in the proclamation. And this word is really important to me, church. 
Karugma. And it's more important to me than almost any word in the Bible other than salvation because of my job description, my responsibility. Look with me on the screen at the definition for this word proclamation, karugma. A proclamation, especially the gospel, preaching to herald as a public crier, especially divine truth, the gospel, proclaiming or publishing. So Paul, this bondservant of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ, has been given this declaration as an apostle. He's been given this karugma, and he's not sent out under his own authority. He's sent out under the authority of Jesus saying, I will proclaim this truth. I am a public crier of this. And here's why this word is so important to me. Because expository teaching like this that karugma refers to is fading from existence in the church of Jesus Christ today. It is fading so quickly that we have people who stop here from around the nation who come in town to visit their family and say, I am starving for this kind of teaching. Not to my credit. I want you to understand that that is not a braggadocious comment. It's because they cannot find expository, verse by verse, break it apart, understand what God's word says. And so they're confused and they're starving. And the church of Jesus Christ is starving for the teaching of truth, the karugma of God to get it out and proclaim it. That's what Paul is speaking of. And this is why it's so hard and so few people do it. Because it represents an uncompromising commitment to God's message. That means even when the verses are hard, we take them on and we push through them. It's not pick and choose. Well, I don't like that, so I'm not going to teach on that. It means God said it. It must be important. So let's address it and understand it. And it is proclamation that's given on behalf of the ruler. He gave it to us, the majesty, and said, do this. So we proclaim it. That's why that word is so important to me. It comes from Ephesians 6. God said he gave some to be pastors and teachers for what? For the equipping of the saints. That's my job description, to equip you through the kerugma, through the preaching. Verse 4. I sound like I'm yelling again. I really don't mean to do that, you guys. (laughs) Okay, I will. All right, verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Would you not love to have a piece of leather with Paul writing to you, to Scott, my true child, to Sandra, my true child, to Nathan, my true child. What did that mean to Titus to receive that? My true child in a common faith. That that statement right there suggests to us that Titus was led to Christ by Paul, and he's his spiritual inheritance. We know nothing about how Titus came to Christ, probably during Paul's second missionary journey from all the pieces we can put together. But we don't know where or how. We know Titus traveled extensively with Paul. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, he's mentioned nine times. He shows up all throughout Scripture because he was in the trenches with Paul, being prepared. As a matter of fact, there was a deep, deep bond between these two men. Let me show you three examples of it up on the screen. The first one comes from 2 Corinthians 7, 6. But God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. 
very interesting to me that Paul got depressed, but that he noted that God comforts the depressed. And do you see how he was encouraged? Just by the arrival of Titus, Paul's spirits are lifted. Look with me at the next one. 2 Corinthians 2.12, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. So he's not just an understudy. He's not just a worker for Paul. It's his brother, his brother in the faith. And he says this in the last one, 2 Corinthians 8.23, my partner and fellow worker. Not just an understudy, but a brother, a co-laborer, like each of you linking arms together to serve the king together in the kingdom. And this is who he says to, my true child in the faith. You are the one whom I'm writing to, Titus, to encourage you. True child, two words that really intensify the close relationship that Paul felt towards him. He's the spiritual son in the fullest sense true child in a common faith, and it refers to the saving faith that we all know. The common faith that Paul had with Titus is the common faith that you have today. We share it in common with each other. We're in common in our belief that Jesus Christ is the only way. I find it remarkable as I work through the text, and the verse 4 is the last one we're going to do today. As I work through this text, I find it remarkable that although Paul was highly gifted, extremely well-educated, he never served alone. Do you notice that about him? He never attempted to carry on a one-man ministry. It's not Paul, Inc. It's not the Paul show. He's always building and he's intimately associated with an amazing network of teachers and preachers always working together. He's a partner in the kingdom. I've really seriously wondered this. How many times did Titus light a candle in his room in the middle of the night and open that scroll up and just read that? (laughs) My true child. Paul calls me a child in the faith. How much would that encourage your heart? Do you think that he put it in his jeans and carried it with him all over the island? I think every church he went to, he got out that letter. said, see the authority that's been given to me to establish elders, to bring structure and function to the church, to show you what it means to live a godly life? I think this letter never left his side. He was marked by his relationship with his mentor. You certainly know that this had a dramatic impact on his life. His mentor has poured into him for years. And now Paul can stand from way over in Greece and send this letter and say, you're my true child. In a common faith, you can do this. He's marked by the relationship. I read this week of a young lady who serves on staff at Wheaton College. She serves in the music program and the director of the music program was having lunch with her and talking to her about her background, he was surprised to discover that her dad, Cindy, and her dad were part of Wheaton College back in the 1970s when she was a little girl. Cindy's dad had the position of the director of the music program at Wheaton College. So this current music director was asking her about her background, and in the midst of the story that I was reading, she said, as a young lady, I played the violin. 
And commonly, my dad would invite individuals to the college to perform. One particular time when she was 13 years old, Cindy was invited backstage because Dr. Zell, uh, orchestra leader from the Toledo Symphonic Orchestra, was invited to play at Wheaton College with the entire orchestra. So he's got the Philharmonic Orchestra there, and he's behind stage talking with Cindy's dad. She's a very young girl, 13 at this time. And her dad turns to Dr. Zell, who is a world-noted orchestra leader, and and says to him, "Um, my daughter Cindy plays the violin. Without saying a word, Dr. Zell grabbed her by the chin and pushed her head back to look at the left side of her jaw and then said to her, you don't practice very much, do you? Oh, because as every violin player knows, when you practice and you're disciplined and you constantly spend time with the instrument, it leaves a mark on your chin, almost a leathery chafing of the skin eventually, not really discernible to most people. But an experienced individual can pick it out. Dr. Zell could see that she wasn't really dedicated and disciplined, so she didn't have that mark upon her. I wonder for us today if we can be identified by that which we're dedicated to, by that which we've sold ourselves to, what we're disciplined to. Do you have a mark on you that even from another country, an aged man in the faith can look and say, it's my true child in a common faith. I see the mark upon him. So I ask the question, what is your identity this morning? What are you sold out to? What, what marks your life? Because here's the truth. You've been left on the island home called earth. You're standing on the shore, and many have gone before you into eternity. But you're here for a reason. You've been set aside for a purpose. So what are you disciplined for? What's your calling? What are you doing with your life for the kingdom? And do you still find joy in it? Or does it irritate you? Is it frustrating? Because you've got to have that sense of joy to be able to work within the kingdom. Third question for you. With whom are you cultivating a deep relationship in a spiritual manner? Not just who is pouring into you, but who are you pouring into? Where's the evidence of that within your life? Because I stand on the truth of God's word. The same God who desired to save the people of the island of Crete desires to save your friends who are not believers. He desires to reach into their life through you. So I think this book is going to be a great journey for us to understand what God means when he says, I'm calling them to godliness. I'm calling this structure of the church together so you can see and understand what a smooth form functioning church looks like, God's behavior among his people, because it's reflected to those in the world who are watching us, is his mark upon us. You imagine all that just from four verses. You want to say to Paul, take a breath, man. I mean, that's actually, if you go back and look at it, that's one sentence. It ends with a period at the end of the fourth verse. That's all one breath. Paul was passionate about these things that I'm passionate about, and I hope you are as well. I look forward to the journey together. One particular area that you can, um, in your own personal life, identify as a discipline, as a dedication that you set yourself apart for Christ is baptism. We're going to have baptism here in three weeks on the 30th. 
And I invite you, if you've never been baptized before, to participate in that action. If you want to connect with myself or, or Pastor Gary, we'll be happy to talk with you about what that means in your life and how you can be part of the baptism service coming up. That will be a true mark in your life that you set yourself apart for the kingdom. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I trust that what's been said this morning is glorifying to you. First and foremost, it's the reason we have the church and the reason that Jesus instituted the church is to bring glory to the Father for the expansion of the kingdom. And we take great joy in being able to be part of it. God, I ask that you would use this time we've spent together with your word um, not only encouraging our hearts, but working on our hearts and conforming us to your way and to your purposes. Let us be identified as people who are sold out for you in our life, in our choices, in our careers. Everything that we do, let us call ourselves doulos, to be a bondservant of God. Continue to conform us, Father, to your purposes. And we ask this through the work of your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.